Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this uh, company of saints, this, these fellow pilgrims that we are called to come alongside, to grow together with, and together to seek your face. Uh, show us afresh this day and in this uh, time period of Sunday school. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, young people, you can head out. And not so young people, we are continuing in... Dietrich Bonhoeffer's treatment of the cost of discipleship. And so this morning, we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. And this is not the title of his chapter, but it is what I titled this lesson which is the enemy. So could someone read for me Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. So there is an interesting thing that Bonhoeffer points out, and that is this entire sermon that begins all the way back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. This entire sermon, he's now gotten up to verse 43. And it's the first time he's mentioned the word love. And that love that he mentions is specifically a love that is towards our enemy. And and so Bonhoeffer first deals with the question of, okay, in the Old Testament you see the nation of Israel not loving their enemies. You see them picking up swords and spears and arrows and going into battle against the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Hittites and, and, and the whole enemies of God, they were called to go to war against them. But here Jesus is giving us a completely new ethic in response to who is our enemy. And so he says, when we look at conflict, when we look at war in the Old Testament, it's always a holy war. It's never the nation of Israel against the nation of Egypt. It's always God's people against Egypt or Assyria or Babylon. It's the people of God. There's always a holy aspect to it. But now, in the New Testament, in the church, we're not tied to one nation. And so the conflicts that you and I experience are not properly conflicts in which we are to take up arms and go against those who would oppress us, as the Old Testament Israelites were supposed to do. Uh, 
but rather our attitude towards those who oppress us is supposed to be one of love. And he goes on to say, from now on, there can be no more wars of faith. The only way to overcome our enemy is by loving him. So now we have to define who is our enemy. Is it, and, and again, this is, and, and I, want, I want this to be relevant. Uh, I want you to consider, you know, in our society today, I think we're very much in the day that Bonhoeffer was living in. Uh, we're, we're in a day in which we see encroaching evil, in which we see the power of evil in society in, in ways that we haven't even begun to recognize. Uh, the, the idea of life being lived in a disembodied manner uh, through social media or, or through uh, Zoom or online events or things like that. The idea that somehow we can dis distance, embodied presence from life, make, make those two things separate, I think is a, is a hidden problem that, that manifests a lot of brokenness. But one of the underlying things about that distinction between identity and embodiment is certainly the transgender movement. Uh, that embodiment has absolutely nothing to do with identity. And, and all of this is becoming increasingly hostile to a church that says God created man, male and female, in his image. Uh, we are created after the image of God. I don't really care what your philosophical distinction between identity and, and genetics is. It's a slap in the face of reality. If God made reality, if he is who he is, if he is who he says he is, then this is his reality, this is his world, this is his game, <laughs> so to quote unquote. Uh, and, and he created male and female. And as much as I want to wave a flag and pronounce a month and celebrate everything and shove down anybody who oppresses us, doesn't change basic reality. <laughs> it's not my world. It's not anybody else's world. It's God's world. And these are increasingly becoming enemies to the message of the gospel in our own culture. But certainly think of around the world, China. Uh, we have brothers and sisters that have been in prison in China for years now. We've got brothers and sisters in Eritrea that have been in prison for their faith for years and years. We have people around the world that are the body of Christ. And the question is, how do they respond? Do they take up arms? Do they say, you can't oppress me, I'm a Christian, and pull out the sword? And Jesus says, no, absolutely not. The way that we conquer is the way of love, the way of service, the way of action. That is how we conquer our enemies. Uh, Bonhoeffer says, our enemy is the one who holds hostility against me, not the one against whom I hold hostility. Because Jesus cannot even conceive of such an ethic. I'm not to hold hostility against anyone. <laughs> so he's not telling me... Uh, 
to, to love the one that I hold hostility against because I am not to hold hostility. Rather, he's telling me to love the one who holds hostility against me. And he goes on to say, who needs our love more than those who are consumed with hatred and are utterly devoid of love? Who, in other words, deserves our love more than our enemy? Where is love more glorified than when she dwells in the midst of her enemies? And I think that that is a very, very, very present call to the church. It's a very, very, very present call to you and me here today as we live our lives, as we live our lives in the world, as we find it, as God has allowed it to be. As we live our lives in this world, we are in an increasing state of hostility against the church, and where is the light going to shine most brightly except in the deepest darkness? You light a candle in the afternoon, and it's not necessarily a big deal. You light that same candle at 1 o'clock in the morning, and your entire room becomes visible. And and so Bonhoeffer is taking this very real principle into a very conscious conflict, uh, which is his reaction to Nazi rule in Germany. So he goes on to say, how do we demonstrate this love? And and Jesus tells us in these verses exactly how we're to demonstrate it. He gives us three things. We are to bless and not curse. We are to do good uh, to our enemy because he makes the sun uh, rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then he says that we are to pray for our enemies. And so in the blessing and, and in the doing good, uh, one of the things that, that and, and in praying, in, in praying for our enemy, the, the way in which we look at our enemy through the eyes of Jesus, and, and I want you to think of somebody that has a legitimate hatred against you, somebody that has a, a, a real, that there's, there's animosity in the relationship. How is it that we deal with the reality of this animosity and genuinely can pray for this one? Uh, he, he says, there's no deeper distress that is found in the world, no pain more bitter than our own enemies, pain, distress, and hatred. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy. We stand by his side and we plead for him to God. The love of, for our enemies takes us all along the way of the cross and into fellowship with the crucified. In the face of the cross, the disciples realized they too were his enemies and he had overcome them by his love. It is this that opens the disciples' eyes and enables him to see his enemy and his brother as his brother. And, and that's, a, that's a powerful point. Uh, that, because I've, what does the issue of forgiveness look like? When we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, I think that's saying the same thing here. And that is that we are committing to look at this person 
through the eyes of what God has done for me. Do you see his love conquering your heart? Do you see his love, do you see your sin as being what put him there? I think, I think that's often a problem of humanity is in general we're all good with sin. But generally when sin is pointed out, it's, well, that one's worse than me. Uh, but it's my sin. It's your sin that put him there. And once we see that, then we can look through his eyes where he looks down upon these people that have just hung him on a tree and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, to, to look through those eyes in the same way that he has looked on you and me. And Bonhoeffer is not saying this just like in theory. Remember, in 1933... Hitler is elected chancellor. And in the same year, Bonhoeffer writes the church and the Jewish question. Right after Hitler is elected chancellor of Germany, Bonhoeffer writes the church and the Jewish question. Uh, in which he says, the Jewish people are my brothers. The church, the, the duty of the church is to care for the oppressed. And, and we cannot stand by and allow the Jews to be, the Jewish people to be oppressed. So he knows exactly what he's saying, and he knows exactly what the signs of the times are. And 1944 is the so-called Night of the Long Knives, I think it was. But anyway, it's the burning of the Reichstag, and Hitler is declared Fuhrer, father. Uh, Sorry, I said 44. 1934. And then in 1937, so Hitler has been Fuhrer. He has been absolute dictator now for three years. In 1937, Bonhoeffer publishes Cost of Discipleship, so he's obviously working on it for a year or two ahead of time. You don't just, boom, have a book. Uh, so, so he's developing this material during the time that Hitler is consolidating and his agenda is becoming more clear uh, and, and more direct. And so Bonhoeffer is writing this right in this period of time. He goes on to say, We are approaching an age of widespread persecution. How is the battle to be fought? Soon the time will come when we shall pray as the entire church. And what prayer will it be? It will be the prayer of earnest love for these very sons of perdition who stand around and gaze at us with eyes aflame with hatred and who have perpetrated perhaps already raised their hands to kill us. It will be a prayer for the peace of those erring, devastated, and bitter souls. A prayer for the same love and peace who we ourselves enjoy. A prayer that will penetrate to the depths of their souls and rend their hearts more grievously than anything they can do to us. 
And I think if we see through those eyes how to engage with our enemy, how to pray for our enemy, that they may know the same love that we know, that, that a heart may be given to them. I can't give them the heart. I can't change the, the flesh. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't change the skin. Only God himself can. But if we pray on our knees, then we're going together with our enemy as mediators for our enemy. And we're bringing our enemy to the throne of grace and praying that God himself will do that work. Bonhoeffer says that common love of nation and family and friends is good. But Jesus here is speaking of a very peculiar love. It's an unreserved love for your enemy. That's the particular love that Jesus is focused on. Anybody can love their friends. Anybody can love their family. Anybody can love their country. But to love your enemy, that's a challenge. (laughs) And that's the peculiar love that Jesus is calling for. And this love is manifest in action. It's a love that does for our enemy, not merely a sympathetic heart. That action sees its greatest fulfillment in the cross. At the very height or depth, whichever way you want to look at it, at the, at the very pinnacle of mankind's hatred against God, hating God so much that we ourselves would kill him if we could, and we tried. Hatred of God. He looked upon us in love. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And that love that is manifest on the cross is then going to reframe how you and I treat everybody and everything around us. Let me give you just a real quick, I hope, practical example. And that is, years ago, I had a conversation with someone, not a member of our church. It was a, it was a conversation in passing. But this person said to me how deeply shocked and concerned that they were by the number of non-native people who were in our area from other countries. And that's actually one of the things that draws me to Northern Virginia. (laughs) It makes me excited about Northern Virginia, because I've kind of grown up in a monoculture, a culture in which a lot of people look like me, thought like me, etc. But I've come to enjoy the various aspects of culture that that show me various various ways of the image of God, various, various ways in which things are good and things are broken. But specifically in terms of evangelism, we are a place where people have come from a country that in many cases has been absolutely shaped by a particular religious message. And breaking away from that particular religion would 
disrupt family ties, it would disrupt economic relationships, it would cost everything. And they are now in a place where they've already disrupted economic ties, they've already disrupted family ties, and I think they are ready and eager and an opportunity for us. But if we look at them as our enemy, if we look at them as someone that we are afraid of, if we look at them as somebody that to, to resist, I think we're missing the opportunity that God places right in front of us. Now, I'm not talking about big policies. I'm not talking about things that are way, way, way outside my circle of influence. I'm talking about what's where my toes are, where my feet are, because that's where ministry is. That's where life is. <laughs> my life is grounded right here. <laughs> and, and my ministry begins from right here. And from right here, God gives me a lot of opportunities to speak to a lot of different people that if I were in their home country, I would not have that opportunity to speak to. Uh, and that's just facts. <laughs> that's just the truth of it. And, and so I think when we can look, and I'm not saying that they are our enemies or should be or any, any of that stuff, but what I'm saying is that when we look at people through the eyes of Christ, I think we stop dividing them up into people like us and people like them. When we start to see the people like us are the sinners and the people like us are, are the ones who are made perfect, then we go someplace really joyful and good. So he closes his entire thing because that last verse, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Bonhoeffer says these men are the perfect. The men in whom the undivided love of the Father is perfected. It was that love which gave the Son to die for us upon the cross. And it is by suffering in the fellowship of the cross that the followers of Jesus are perfected. The perfect are none other than the blessed of the Beatitudes. So he begins by saying, blessed are. And then he here says, be perfect. And he says, you and I are the perfect. You and I, the ones whose identity is in Christ, whose identity is in the cross of Christ, are declared perfect. And it is through this that we are perfected, <laughs> that we continue uh, to, to move forward in the image of Christ. But it is through specifically the way in which we engage those who hate us. Not our friends, our neighbors, whatever, uh, but those who are our enemies, those who are the other, those who are not like us. It's how we engage them uh, that this love is defined. So, with those thoughts in mind, let, uh, let's close with prayer and we will go into our time of fellowship. Father, we do thank you for the one who is love made perfect. This perfect love that is ours in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to grow experientially in that, in our words and our thoughts and in our actions. And specifically, Father, for those who would seek to destroy the gospel and destroy the church, 
not only those around the world, but here in our own culture who are set up against the Lord and his anointed. Father, would you give us the grace to love them, to pray for them, to pray earnestly that that bitterness and pain and hunger and fear and hatred would all be shattered in that glorious Christ Jesus, that rock which crushes every statue. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.